In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Happy New Year! This is your amazing pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher, Dr. Santosh. Are you ready for your first word of the new year, Santosh? Well, your first recorded one. I thought we just did, but sure, yes, I I am ready. No, 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 no. Your first new medical word of the new year. Oh, Oh, you're. Oh, see, this is the this is my favorite part when you teach me something that just blows my hair back. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Have you ever heard of the word snatiation? Like satiation, satiation, but with the snuh. Is yes. that what you're saying? Yes. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> what are you talking Sn- about? Your snatiation reflex is when you eat <laughs> yeah. so much. When you uh-huh. eat so much, perhaps from celebrating a holiday, that it causes uh-huh. you to sneeze. No, it is, no, this it is... is not. It is not unlike <laughs> the photic uh-huh. reflex, which is you walk okay. out into bright sunlight and sneeze. Although that, of course, is called a right. syndrome. Yes, it is. Instead, uh-huh. instead, satiation is a combination of sneezing and satiation. You are satiated. Your stomach is so full that it causes you to sneeze. And this is another reflex that is genetically transmitted. And it's just fun to say. So that is my first new word of 2024. I am achoo, (laughs) snatiated. Like, is this one of your attempts to get this, like a word into the Oxford English Dictionary or the Medical Dictionary or something? Or is this for real, like actually in the zeitgeist? I am pretty sure that if you go ahead and do a real-time Google search and I will sit around okay. and wait, you will discover <laughs> that it is a real medical term. Holy cow. 
Okay, okay. I, I'm on Healthline, sneezing after eating, which we all have, uh, you know, we have. And it looks like um, there are references on the Wikipedia article, TB et al. in the Journal of Medical Genetics, because there's an autosomal dominant sneezing disorder provoked by the fullness of stomach. So someone's actually looked at the genetics of this. <laughs> and then another one in the Journal of Medical Genetics on the Snaciation Reflex. And it does look like it is an acronym, Josh. In April 1990, Dr. Hall et al. published uh, the Snaciation Reflex in the Journal of Medical Genetics and decided to give it an acronym. So they put in there sneezing non-controllably at a time of indulgence of the appetite dash a trait inherited and ordained to be named <laughs> so, so they did they applied the acronym backwards so they called it a backronym journal of medical genetics volume 27 <laughs> medical word of the year is snaciation before we snaciate you yes it is, <laughs> i think you figured out as we like to start off very serious on these kinds of weeks oh, santosh it's an alternate call. week yeah. And do you know what happens <gasps> during alternate uh, weeks? Are are you saying to me that this is one of our alternate weeks where we do our favorite segment of the alternate week? Everybody's favorite segment of the alternate <laughs> week, where we dig around the internet, round up what's new in the medical world of news, research, and other fun, and we uh -huh. bring it to you in the form of a... Journal Club! Yay! Yay! <laughs> and I think that's the first Kermit Arms of the new year. It is. And you know what we didn't do for this new year? Properly yeah. prepare an outline. So, you oh. are in luck. <laughs> oh, so good. So, my home listeners, you're in luck because we are about to do as close to a live show without being live as we can. <laughs> you are yeah, learning. Welcome. You are going to learn all of this with us. And so it is Journal Club, The Unprepared. Ooh, I feel like we're going on an adventure. One of the first things I, I wanted to bring up, because it was really the only one I did have prepared and and I don't want to make you wait till the end because okay. I'm just nice yeah, like yeah. that is Santosh right. I'm going to throw out a name and I just want you to do a little bit of free association and those of you who have been following along with our show for the while can also likely jump onto this and get ahead of the competition if I oh, were sure. to say <laughs> Sergio Canavero oh Yes, it brings back. See, listeners, we have some amazing. Uh, can we say like science history idols on this podcast? Uh, so our our very favorite, of course, is Benjamin Duggar, plant physiologist, and we both adore John Snow, who's one of the fathers of modern epidemiology. But Sergio Canavero is by far and away the weirdest. And Josh, is, do you say Canavero? Yeah, yeah, tell me. Tell he me. is easily my favorite mad scientist. And this is by <laughs> this is exactly what you're thinking of a mad scientist. Whatever you're picturing, that's it. And why are we calling yeah. him a mad scientist? Well, 
because Sergio Canavero has a dream. A dream that one day he can take a head off one human, put it onto another <laughs> human, <laughs> and everything will carry on hunky-dory. Yeah. And as, yeah. And as such, we have covered on at least four or five separate different episodes his attempts to carry out the first human head transplantation. Uh, Josh, I think you discovered this at one point down one of your internet rabbit holes. It may have been that you yourself were thinking about, well, uh, <laughs> well let's talk about what problem this solves, because this this is, there's some thought beyond behind this. Say that you have a head that's fine, you know, everything from the neck up, but that patient's body is absolutely ravaged. It can be an autoimmune disorder or cancer, but nothing has made it past the neck. Well, you can't salvage every single organ and dig everything out. So why not just disconnect the blood vessels, nerves, spinal cords from the head to the rest of the body, and then move it over just to a whole you know, body. <laughs> it's it's what we like to call the abandoned ship medical procedure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just everything just out, out. <laughs> okay. All right. So yeah. let me give you a little bit of the history of head transplantation in the cliff note version. And then yeah. we'll get to this article that I found uh, just a day or two ago. Because <laughs> yeah, Josh, uh, to preface this, there has been a history of this. Like, it's been tried. Yeah, it's been tried. But... <laughs> yeah. All right, all right, let's... Go, 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 go. <laughs> we're, we're not even going to use the Wayback Machine. I'm just going to wave you over to look at some of our old outlines. And yeah. in, in 1908, Charles Guthrie tried to transplant the head of a dog onto the neck of a recipient dog without success. That was sort of the first attempt. Then... 1950, yeah. Vladimir Demikov developed several surgical techniques concerning transplant for vital organs and limbs that helped advance the field. We get to the 70s. Robert White performed the first successful head transplant or cephalic exchange in a monkey, <laughs> in a monkey yeah. by transplanting yeah. the head of a rhesus monkey onto the body of another headless one. The monkey survived <laughs> for eight days with smell, taste, hearing, and motor function in the transplanted head. Now, yeah. recently... Now, just, th this monkey didn't... I, I don't think they were able to get the full movement. Like, the, the body wasn't moving or anything like that. So basically, the circulation, the blood circulation from the body was keeping the head alive. Then we move on to a little more recent... Uh, in the early 2000s, Hirabayashi and Saigawara made a head transplant in rats, and that was just to evaluate brain function after blood loss. They weren't trying to keep it alive, uh, but they did yeah. describe a surgical approach for head transplant in a mouse model. Finally, we reach where we enter into the story, learning about Mr. Uh, Canavero et al., who in hey, 2017... Doctor. Dr. Canavero to you, okay? He didn't go to evil medical school to be called <laughs> Mr. <laughs> and, and in 2017, Ren et al. performed a cephalosomatic anastomosis using a human cadaver, meaning in dead people, they were able to successfully transplant heads, but you're not really getting a lot of activity 
It's more <laughs> just about the, it's more just about making sure everything hooks up. So yeah, this has so, been the road so far. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting, Josh, right? Because the the spaces in the kind of the base of the neck, right? If you if you hit just the right sweet spot about where you make your cut, you have to get the arteries right. So principally the carotid arteries, but some of the others that supply the external structures of the face and everything else. Um, you have to get the veins, so the jugulars and the other accessory veins that drain blood from the head and the face. Then you've got to hook up the trachea, you've got to hook up the esophagus, and you've got to get a lot of the musculature right so you could potentially move uh, your head and neck and everything around. So I think in this cadaveric uh, procedure, they essentially got it to where you know you were able to pass through you know the, you had a continuous esophagus a continuous trachea and when you pumped blood through it circulated all the way around and came back to the heart so i'm going to give you way more detail than probably most of you ever thought you needed about this <laughs> we like to check in on this every so often just to see where it is, you know, whether or not he's been laughed out of science or people are yeah. coming with pitchforks and torches. And uh, <laughs> I have in front of me a article written by a Greek researcher, Gregorios mm -hmm. Gustaris, and it describes first human head transplantation, surgically challenging, ethically controversial and historically tempting. An experimental endeavor or a scientific landmark. So he's yeah. kind of doing a review of all the steps that have been taken thus far. And some of the the comments that this researcher brings up include, you know, we agree the first attempt should be performed in a young person suffering from a terminal disease, like a muscular dystrophy. The donor would have yes. to be the donor would have to be a young brain dead patient with healthy organs matched for immunotype and screened. The aim is to perform removal of the head from the recipient and detachment of the body from the donor and then, you know, mix and match them. So here are the steps. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's, let's go through each of the uh, structures, I guess. Now, I want to emphasize, I want to emphasize everything I'm about to tell you has been individually accomplished and or theoretically possible it is the i think with, with the matching. exception i think josh <laughs> well i think with the exception of spinal cord fusion that that's the big well, obstacle well right here now. we go so based okay, on okay. the work by canavero and wren and all the et al's two yeah. surgical teams <laughs> Two surgical teams participate and work simultaneously to conduct this. Recipient okay. and donor are intubated, trached, vented, and put into rigid fixation. They're monitored with ECGs, EEGs, all of those. Then burst suppression pattern or brain death is achieved in the recipient with the use of barbiturate or propofol. Or sorry, burst suppression pattern is achieved in the recipient with the use of sedatives like barbiturates. The recipient's head 
is subjected to profound hypothermia, 10 degrees Celsius or what it is outside in Chicago tomorrow, while the donor's body only receives spinal hypothermia. So you want to avoid, you know, making the rest of the right. body too cold. Now, yeah. we so do have just to just to clarify for people who aren't following, the recipient in this case is going to be the head, donor is going to be the body. In order to get this profound hypothermia, you have to do hypothermic perfusion with a heat exchanger. So we already have something like this when we do heart transplants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, bypass and now, cooling, yes. Now, the biventricular cooling system for deep brain hypothermia would be provided with the use of cooling helmets. So we're already getting into some future <laughs> tech. <laughs> By the way, those look exactly how you think they look. <laughs> Whereas the donor's spinal cord can be hypothermized with perfusion of subdural and epidural cold solutions. And the reason you make it so cold is it lowers the metabolic rate and tissues and gives surgeons time to make the connections. So you're you're deep freezing somebody like you traditionally think of in, say, Demolition Man or any of the cryogenics, which do not work. As yeah. <laughs> like cry- cryogenics is not a thing as much as we may, as much as we may want it yeah. to be, but cryogenics <laughs> in this short term surgery is in fact possible. So yeah, yeah. Th- it's as long as the time is short enough here. It does. There is an extra little help here when you keep the temperature really low. Is you also suppress active inflammatory responses in response to injury. So you want to prevent those so that you don't have inflammation and specifically scar tissue being built up. You want neurons to be able to connect back up together instead of just scarring over in response to being sliced. So there are three surgical phases done by these two teams on each body. The anterior approach, you expose the carotid, vertebral, the jugular, all the arteries and veins, and mark them up for mm-hmm. linkage. You expose the trachea and esophagus, and which has all the nerves running alongside it. And then you flip them over <laughs> onto their bellies, and you expose the spine. <laughs> so you just flip them. <laughs> you just flip okay. them over. Place them in a prone uh position. (laughs) Laminectomies are performed. The spinal cords are transected with ultra-sharp blades. All of this is still possible. I don't know what you're trying to accomplish with it other than head transplant, but all of these are different bits and pieces of other surgeries that we have managed to do. Here's where it gets fun. Yeah. The recipient's head (laughs) is separated, exsanguinated, (laughs) and flushed with iced ringer's lactate, you know, because you don't want coagulation. Oh, 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 so you don't you don't keep the blood circulating in the body during this process and like, you know, ligate off the carotids or something while you're waiting. You just okay, okay, all right, got it. So you're running cold water through there. Okay. Yeah. So you you cut off the head, run cold water <clears throat> through it, then got it. transfer it onto the donor's headless body with tubes that connect it to the donor's circulation, and all of this has to be done in under an hour. Okay. Then gotcha. Then you stabilize the spine and fuse it with a special kind of glue, polyethylene glycol, that has the ability to immediately reconstitute cell membranes damaged by mechanical injury. You also infuse it into the donor's blood circulation so it fills up the intravascular space and promotes neuronal fusion. 
Then you sew the cord together, suture if you want to be technical, and give mm -hmm. another injection of this polyethylene glycol after four to six hours. That's, that's the biggest step and the one that I think they're really having the wow. most trouble with. After yeah, that, yeah, yeah. After that, then you start reconnecting the veins, uh, the carotid, the jugular, you take out the vascular tubes, and sutures are applied on the vessels of the transplanted head with the new body. So the donor circulation, or you know, the body provides blood to the recipient's head. And you give a mm -hmm. spinal cord stimulator attached to the spine, screw it in, and then muscles are linked, skin is sewn. Muscle skin is not the problem. It's the nerves and yeah. the flushing of blood. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. all of these are things <laughs> that are so yeah. <laughs> that are in fact technically possible. Yeah. Yeah. V vascular surgery is very well known and you can save a person, you know, if you move fast enough, if, if they've had a cut to their neck, you can definitely reconnect and, and ligate blood vessels like the jugular veins and the carotid arteries. That's very doable. The brain, as long as the brain is okay and kind of complete, there's no genetic anomalies, you can, Josh, even fail to connect one carotid because you have the circle of Willis at the base of the brain that can perfuse the entire brain in case you lose one carotid. So there's some redundancy connecting muscles and tissues. It's not trivial, but it's, it's definitely, you know, well studied, especially in head and neck surgery, trachea. Yes, absolutely. You can connect those esophagus. You definitely can do, but I do have trouble with spinal cord because we do have spinal cord surgery now, and we do have spinal cord stimulators for people who've undergone, you know, spinal uh, transection injuries and, you know, paralysis. And we even are starting to get regeneration and that kind of, you know, very slow rehab type of thing. But at the neck, you know, when you have all these amazing, you know, uh, nuclei and everything like that, that, you know, some of them feed the cranial nerves and, and, you know, so I, I don't see in, all this happening, right? No. <laughs> it's been done in a cadaver. It took 18 hours to complete acting as a full rehearsal to optimize the surgical steps. Um, now, okay. when we first yeah, started yeah. following the story, Sergio claimed he would have done this by 2017. You may have noticed. Yeah. <laughs> hasn't happened yet. Uh, but, but this paper yeah, goes the, into some of the really interesting ethical complications. And I just want to go through them very, very quickly before we move on to our next donor body selection. You know, who, yeah. who's going to say, yes, you can use my body for this. Now, here's the thing. Face transplants also sounded ridiculous in the past, but those have absolutely been performed. And we mm -hmm. found donor tissues for face transplants. So the scientists believe that, yeah, no, we'll eventually find people willing to be donors for head transplants and body transplants. Um, well, I'll, I'll inject one thing in there that, uh, you know, this, this doctor didn't talk about when you're donating an entire body like this and the person is an organ donor and they're, you know, they, they decide to do this. 
you are taking away the ability for that one body to potentially save multiple lives, right? Because now all of a sudden, if that person was an organ donor and you could save a liver failure patient, two kidney uh, failure patients, a heart failure patient, and maybe even lungs and gut, now you're you're paring that down and saying, nope, we're just going to save one individual. So that's an ethical hurdle. Well, there also may be legal obstacles. So the future okay. offspring of a patient who has been subjected to head transplantation. <gasps> oh, oh my gosh. I never thought of this. Yeah, yeah. Tell, t- say it, say it. May pose questions regarding inheritance and parental custody alone, but also you're going to have two. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. two different sets of genetic codes, one in the body, one in the head. Now, who's directing (laughs) what comes up in the sex chromosomes? Um, So reproductive implications. It's going to be the body. Yeah, yeah. In addition, addition, of course, there could be religious barriers. And also, what if you're performing head transplant between patients of, say, different genders? So identity issues could be even more complicated. Once wow. you start having, yeah, yeah. you know, those, uh, of course, Ren and Canavero have expressed their certitude for the feasibility of the procedure. And the last thing that I want to kind of put into this and, and the first one that caught my attention about it is Sergio Canavero only wants to do the head transplant as a stepping stone for him. Okay. okay. The head transplant is his silver medal because... As of January 11th, 2023, he is claiming Mm -hmm. that human brain transplants are technically feasible. He's like, listen, the only reason I want to cut off the head and put it on another body is just because we didn't have the technology available for me to take a brain straight out of the head and put it into a new skull. (laughs) Oh, the... This is madness. Like the number of things you have to reconnect when you put a brain back in. I mean, I'm assuming you're not taking the eyes. So you have to reconnect optic nerves and vestibulocochlear nerves and all the rest of the cranial nerves. And then you're cutting into the midbrain and the pons. Like that's the the essential center for like breathing and all this. This is madness. So, this is this is a mad scientist. Stuff. So here's my follow up. In 2015, Canavero okay. started proposing a full head transplant. He said it'd be done by 2017. Yeah. That 
the closest we've gotten is transplanting a head between cadavers. And now he just published an article in Surgical Neurology International, a journal that is peer reviewed, but also he's an editor. And the article <laughs> and the article is called Whole Brain Transplantation in Man, dot dot dot, technically feasible. <laughs> Oh man, this makes me so happy. <laughs> just well, because this type of for lack of a better term, madness, you know, th- there there's an idea here that makes sense in terms of what could save a life when you have an intact head and an intact brain and the body is deteriorating, like you said. Maybe the patient has muscular dystrophy or ALS, uh, the way that Stephen Hawking did. And you just, you know, the head and neck are okay, but you need you need a, a, a better body. I I don't know what's gonna happen, and this definitely needs maybe decades to get much. Oh no, no, science. wait, wait. It gets even better. Okay. I'm sorry. One oh god. As you go back and through and read this, now you and okay. I are talking about like, oh, this would be great because you would give new life to people with progressive muscular diseases. And, you know, yeah, the ultimate okay. goal, the ultimate goal of such a procedure would be to extend the number of years a person could enjoy living in a pristine body, he puts in the paper. There are major questions about what he proposes would ever work in a living human being, especially since part <laughs> of the solution hinges on yeah. since getting a ready available supply of donor bodies may be ethically problematic he suggests developing he suggests developing full grown human clones to provide the new bodies mic drop oh. i'm done let's just clone a body do a full brain transplant yeah cuz that cuz that bypasses oh dear <laughs> Because it takes, just like what you were saying, it takes away the reproductive aspect because that's going to be a cloned, you know, body of there. But there is going to be some serious things here, right? If, if you know, if it is a genetic disorder or something like that, that body's just going to deteriorate again. But it does, I guess, take away a lot of these ethical hurdles, except for, I'm guessing you're growing a full human being, <laughs> <laughs> which means you still have to behead someone and you probably have to bring them like somehow raise them up to the right age. So you'd need age acceleration to get them to be old enough. Otherwise you'd be transplanting a head onto like a baby. <laughs> I guess the future. Josh, would you have to, would you have to behead a baby? <laughs> oh God. I guess the future is a terrible place to be headed. <laughs> oh, oh, horrible. All right. Well, being. that's it. Listen, stay tuned for uh, more updates as we get them on Sergio Canavero, my favorite mad soiled. scientist. So uh, let's go on to some real science now. How you feel about that? Um, oh, I, yeah, I'd absolutely love that. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's do long some as, stuff that, yeah. As long as we're talking about brains and transplants, how do you feel about giving salmonella to the brain to fight cancer? Oh, okay. So um, just uh, salmonella 
is uh, an intracellular bacteria, so it likes to dig into cells. So it would be a fantastic like drug delivery type of a system and that kind of thing. Yeah, if you made it nice so it wasn't infectious anymore and it wasn't trying to destroy your tissue, uh, yeah, I, I guess you could hijack it and turn it into a, a drug delivery thinger. That'd be pretty cool. So biomedical engineers at Duke have started creating a strain of salmonella to fight brain cancer. And the specific Uh brain cancer that they're talking about is glioblastoma, which is one of the most aggressive kinds of brain cancer. Now, one of the things that makes it so difficult to attack glioblastoma is what's known as the blood-brain barrier. It's what prevents things in our general circulation, most of the time, making it into the brain. It's also a very difficult cancer to remove through surgery, as even the tiniest remnant can be the seed of a new tumor. So with the best care currently available, most of the time, a diagnosis of glioblastoma is about 12 to 15 months to live, and only 10% of patients survive five years once they're diagnosed. And there, there are gradations of this, but generally speaking... When you get this diagnosis, it's just a matter of how long you have to live. Now, one of the reasons they chose salmonella is that it is a facultative anaerobe. What does that mean, Santosh? <laughs> it serves uh, on the university faculty. No, that's <laughs> <laughs> of bacteria. You no uh, facultative. Well, anaerobe. These are bacteria that can survive without oxygen. So they use different mechanisms in order to metabolize their carbon for energy. Facultative simply means that they can switch on this ability when they need to. So in a fully aerobic environment, they can still utilize oxygen and live that way. But in the right conditions, it can flip a switch and say, okay, I, I don't need oxygen anymore. And one of the things so unique or interesting about salmonella is that you can essentially turn it into a little tumor homing missile because it will it can be bred for selective colonization and growth in hypoxic regions of tumors. So think of it this way. Tumors oh, yeah. use a lot of energy. As you use up energy, you're using up oxygen. That means a rapidly growing tumor is going to have a lot of low oxygen areas as it's used up all the resources. You can then sends these bacteria into those low oxygen areas and they will selectively kill the tumor. Oh, very cool. So you use the tumors, what we call the microenvironment to, you know, kind of flip it on and go to work. Um, Still a little bit scary because salmonella in and of itself, if you were to just let it run rampant, it's probably not just going to stop at eating the tumor unless you engineer it as such to, just target the tumor and then, you know, be nice well, to the rest of the body. Here's how, here's how they make it selective. Um, the Duke team took a bacteria Salmonella typhimurium, which mm-hmm. I believe yep. is non-dangerous to humans. Maybe it's it a is. One. Yeah. So yeah. Muris. Anytime you see um, uh, murine, muris, any of those, uh, that means of the mouse. So it's still a typhus or, uh, you know, uh, uh, sorry, typhoid type of uh, 
species, but Typhimurium is going to be, uh, it's going to be virulent in mice and it causes a lot less disease in humans unless you're immune compromised or something like that. So the researchers started with rats who had glioblastoma. They did this salmonella tweaking and treatment on it and tests in rat models showed a 20% survival rate over 100 days, which is about 10 human years equivalent with tumors going into complete remission. So how did they do it? They selected a detoxified strain of salmonella that was also deficient in an enzyme called purine that forced the bacteria to seek that purine elsewhere. And tumors happened to be an excellent source of purine, which caused the bacteria to flock to them in droves. Then once the bacteria got into the tumor cells or infected them, another series of genetic tweaks had been made that the bacteria would produce two compounds called azurin and P53. And those are kind of the self-destruct sequences that would only work in the presence of low levels of oxygen. Since cancer cells multiply, as we mentioned, so energetically, the environment around them would have low oxygen. That means these purine-rich cells would be infected by salmonella. The more they divide, the faster they divide, the lower the oxygen is. That turns the self-destruct sequence in the salmonella on. It produces these self-destruct proteins. The tumor cells die. Regular cells who are not dividing so rapidly and have a ready supply of oxygen, even if they get infected with the salmonella, don't start making the self-destruct proteins. So it's a little Trojan horse. Very, very cool. Yeah, so this was the... Uh, this was the previous article, right? This was the uh, the older one, or is this the newer one talking about like our, our update so far? So the original one was the idea of using bacteria to fight cancer um, or nanoparticles. That was that was the original study that I found we talked about a long time ago. Is just how do you select for something? Well, you choose bacteria because they can cross the blood brain barrier and they yes. grow well in low oxygen areas. But this idea of now using some of our more recent tools like CRISPR to insert genes into these bacteria that will actively cause self-destruct. And along the way, they found that salmonella could also trigger neutrophils or an immune response. So neutrophils will migrate to the area where all the salmonella are. Now that could compromise how therapeutically efficient they are, because if a bunch of neutrophils and white blood cells show up and kill your bacteria Salmonella, kill your, yeah, exactly. and kill your tumor <laughs> bacteria, then the tumor goes back to growing. Or it could be a nice yeah. way to clean up after yourself. You send the salmonella yeah. in, it kills mm -hmm. off the tumor, the tumor's gone, neutrophils have migrated with no tumor cells left to hide in, your immune system now kills the salmonella, which are non-infectious, but hanging out in your brain, and you've now cleaned up yeah. after yourself. So that is that's the fun update. <laughs> that's a cool one. The this beautiful article that you sent uh, that was performed in China. Uh, so doctors uh, Zemi et al. This was even cooler, Josh, because. They not only followed all of those steps that you were talking about, but they also altered the neutrophils themselves 
uh, to carry doxorubicin, which is a chemotherapeutic. So they loaded the doxorubicin into these little outer membrane vesicles in there. Um, and then when, when the salmonella went in there and kind of met the neutrophils, so like they, they met up at the same time. So what happened over here was that the, uh, the salmonella express a gene of vibrio actually another one flips on the the neutrophils and then the doxorubicin which is actually carried by the neutrophils um in these little you know outer membrane vesicles they get you know kind of unload and all of a sudden the neutrophils then are turned on by the salmonella to deliver chemotherapy <laughs> So this is a great like synergistic use of bacteria and a modified immune system. Really fun to do in mice, but would be very complicated to execute this in humans, but still a very, very cool model. Now, originally, this was going to be a whole journal club about updates on old stories we've done, but it turns out science takes a really long time. And even yeah. <laughs> though we have covered, even though we've covered some of these stories as far as five or even eight or nine years back, some of the journals and studies when started were not yet complete, which is why we can't tell you, hey, remember what we talked about seven years ago? It's just common practice now. It's getting closer, but we're yeah. not yeah, quite yeah. there. <laughs> Although, um, Josh, there are some leaps and bounds. Uh, which do get done through the magic of this um, this amazing substance called um, money. And it turns out that when you aggressively fund a technology, such as, for instance, mRNA vaccination, then you can go from decades and decades of development to an excellent vaccine in the matter of two years. <laughs> so... <laughs> So uh, a, a lot of these, they haven't gotten the scientific attention, the funding uh, that you know it deserves in order to advance. But I did want to explain to uh, all of our listeners about this magic, uh, uh, you know, kind of ephemeral substance that we talk about from time to time in science. As I said. <laughs> We wanted to give you updates on a lot of our old stories, but it turns out most of those studies are still ongoing or in development and have not quite made it to the general public. Here's a couple different ones I've got just in front of me uh, without having okay. explored them in depth. Scientists finally explain why urine is yellow. Moderna's, okay. <laughs> Moderna's cancer vaccine shows strong results and could be available by 2025. And okay, this, capsule, yes. this capsule prevents overeating by vibrating inside the stomach. Oh, I love that one. Yes. And that one, I because we had talked a little bit about that one previously, right? Like the use of um, like vibratory stimulation in order to get the bowels moving. I think we, we discussed that a, a few years ago, a couple of years ago. All right, so let's let's explore this one further. Is that where we're going, Santosh? Or you want the the other one that I have uh, because I just went through our medical breakthroughs of twenty twenty three. The the one that I uh, I really love that popped up was the first 
uh, CRISPR gene editing technique that was fully approved to treat sickle cell disease, uh, FDA approved, which we have definitely spoken of at length in terms of using CRISPR over the years, actually, we've been following the story for a while. So I'm happy with, with either of these. Let's start by going into the capsule. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, everything does come down to poo. And we've got to start with uh, a vibe check. That's that's for the okay. Gen Zers out there. <laughs> because... Yeah, because researchers <laughs> at MIT have developed an ingestible capsule that prevents overeating by vibrating inside your stomach called Vibes, the vibrating ingestible bioelectronic <laughs> stimulator. And yeah. it, <laughs> it reduced food consumption in test animals by 40 percent. Mm-hmm. So this, of course, would be aimed at treating obesity and reducing the amount of surgical procedures done for it. Uh, sure, now, sure. We know that there are hormones that lead to satiation, not snatiation, just satiation, no, yes, a sense, of, a sense sati- of fullness. A fullness so that you don't want to eat anymore. Yeah, absolutely. But in addition to hormones, another way that your body knows it's full is you activate mechanoreceptors, which are essentially if your stomach stretches, it's like, oh, we're Mm -hmm. a little full. Let's just hold off on eating until we can contract and expel this food. So it's the stomach version of, you know, when you're stretching, like you're stretching your arm or your leg, you feel that, you know, kind of tension. Uh, that's, we have the same types of mechano sensors, just, you know, to see how, how much is in your tummy. But this is of course an involuntary action. The only way to stretch your stomach is to eat enough to stretch your stomach. So this is where the paper on the vibes capsule comes in. Uh, they, the researchers wanted to see if they could artificially activate stretch receptors in the stomach by vibrating them and fooling them into thinking the entire stomach has been expanded. So it's an optical or a gustable illusion uh, that could modulate yeah. hormones and eating patterns. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. And this is, it, it's kind of interesting, Josh, because this ran a little bit parallel with uh, the vibrating capsule that stimulated the you know the the sensors in your bowel further down and this kind of a thing to help with constipation and so this type of thing using either vibratory or electrical stimulation to signal various things in the gi tract we've been looking at this you know since maybe 2011 2010 long long time so in order to carry this out the researchers tested the capsule on 10 pigs Each of the Uh animals got the capsule 20 minutes before the meal every day for several days. So this is clearly not something that you take once and forget about. This is a daily, you know, vitamin or vibing, vibing pill. And then when they studied, (laughs) when they studied every time one of these vibe capsules came in contact with the stomach fluid, it began to vibrate. Mm -hmm. The vibration lasted 30 minutes, and that was enough to trigger the mechanoreceptors and resulted in decreased food intake among pigs, who, as we all know, lack complete self-control in eating. That's why it's right there in the phrase, eating like a pig. 
So if you can yeah. get them to stop. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. uh, by the end of the experiment, researchers Srinivasan and her team observed a 40% drop in food consumption of the test animals compared to the control group animals. Oh, so, hey, not too bad at all. Uh, let's see. As we work our way through methods, results, it's a consistent effect where there's a bunch of graphs about mm -hmm. it. Uh, the pigs did not have any side effects. The capsules safely yep. left their system after four to five days. That means if they were fed every day for 20 days, they were carrying at any given time about at least five to 10 capsules working their way through the digestive system. The okay, pills very nice. did not show any signs of obstruction, perforation, or other negative impacts. Okay. 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 So, so it didn't it didn't hurt the, the GI tract. Now the capsule uses silver oxide to power the activity or battery. So there's one possible problem I see because silver oxide is toxic. So if it leaks yeah. out of the pill, you could get stomach pain or ulcers or depending where it leaks, other health problems. In this particular trial, all of the, the pills came out intact. So at least in terms of surviving the GI tract of a human-like system, it, it worked out pretty well in this trial. And it's also a fairly short effect. Remember, the capsule had to vibrate for 30 minutes, and that to give you mm -hmm. a temporary sense of stomach fullness. And since most stomachs empty within about an hour based on gastric emptying studies, the longest this mm -hmm. would give you that effect would be an hour. You can't swallow a pill every hour. So they've got to figure out a way to make that effect last longer or else we're still at yeah. the same, you know, exercise, healthy diet and all the other new year stuff that most of us will not follow through on. Uh, so <laughs> Yeah. So this study was from the journal Science Advances. Well, I already told you it's called Vibes, a vibrating ingestible yeah. bioelectronic stimulator. Bioelectric stimulator. Yeah. Modulates gastric stretch receptors. Yeah for illusory satiety. Uh, that's, that's pretty interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's I can work cool. with that. I like that. And yeah, yeah. So this was, uh, you know, one of our, you know, the beautiful articles and it, it is relatively new December 22nd, 2023. But this was something that had been studied, you know, looking at gastric mechanotransducers for a very, very long time and, uh, you know, surgeries that are much more extensive than this. So lap bands and gastric bypass and all these kind of things. Because, Josh, the, the main thing that we found out when we try to do weight loss, right, is just suggestions and discussing weight loss strategies, like the rational stuff of eat less, exercise more, <laughs> does not seem to work in the general population, especially in the first world. So we do need to trick the body somehow like this. And this kind of non-invasive method in order to stimulate the stomach and just say, hey, you don't, you don't need to eat anymore. You're, you're full. You're doing okay. 
So <laughs> it's pretty, pretty cool. So yeah, the, the in vivo model to evaluate ingestible devices and all these, we're going back to like, you know, 2020, 2021, uh, even pre-COVID. And this was a nice kind of stepwise development to recognize the mechanotransductors or I guess the mechanosensory receptors in the stomach, uh, how to stimulate them properly, design the device, put it together, and then, you know, feed it to some pigs and see if it worked. So maybe this wasn't a totally (laughs) unprepared journal club. No. <laughs> maybe maybe it's more of a this. where are they now? Right now that they're, they're in poo, the pills. <laughs> they they have been disposed of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think this is a beautiful way to ring in 2024. All right, so that's it for this week, our first journal club of the new year. We do still have a lot of fun stories coming up in the rest of our season. As always, we love to hear your comments, <laughs> questions and feedback. The show is produced by Mm -hmm. me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading. We also are on all the social medias, including TikTok, so you can find us there. While you're uh, wrapping up the the episode, I've been looking up more about snatiation because I'm borderline obsessed right now. (laughs) So, while Santosh becomes uh, snatiated, I'm going to bid all the rest of you a very, very happy new year wherever you are in the world. Keep a song in your heart, soap on your hands, a shot in your arm, a spin on your globe. When you've done all of those things, pick a place to go. Make sure there are no health warnings for it. And uh, happy travels. Sometimes as many as 15 consecutive sneezes. Holy cow. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.